Today, your face is like a fingerprint, and it's available to so many, and tied to so much, that there is little hope of anonymity or privacy. The face in the crowd is yours, and everyone's. And then later, we'll hear from a dynamic duo on the run. I'm Dr. Alan Campbell, and this is Watching America. All my life, watching America. All my life, it's in America. From WHRV Norfolk, this is Watching America. Kashmir Hill was a senior reporter for Gizmodo Media Group for years, before joining the New York Times as a technology reporter. She has also written for other publications such as Forbes magazine and has been featured by various media outlets, including a highly viewed TED Talk. Although she is technically savvy and well-versed in the accompanying expected jargon of her field, she has also proven herself to be equally adroit in the usage of humour. While beguiling an audience with welcomed mirth, she often conveys disturbing revelations about the loss of our true privacy. Welcome, Kashmir Hill, to Watching America. Thank you. That was such a flattering description of me. Well, it was an accurate one. Um, I must ask you, and, and pardon me for this, I'm sure you must get this quite readily. People of my generation certainly will inquire. Were you named after the Led Zeppelin song, perhaps? I was, and that is not usually people's first guess. Ah, good, good, good. Well, as soon as I saw your name, I thought, da-da-dam, da-da-dam, dam da da dam da da dam It's a great song. It is fantastic, and it's been sampled a number of times in, in, in other works. Well, let's go to the immediate thing that I'm, I'm in, particularly intrigued about. You have said that nine years ago, you attended a Federal Trade Commission workshop where the possibility of face recognition software was being considered for application not only commercially, but perhaps uh, transgressing into other areas where it shouldn't. The general opinion of those who attended was this is something that has to be safeguarded and not should uh, in, in no way should be let just free to randomly destroy people's lives or um, put any onus on persons for having done something that they haven't done or false identification. In a way, one starts to think of, you know, Tom Cruise in in um, films like Minority Report where people have, you know, precogs and they may potentially be accused of something. Well, most of the people, as you have said, dismissed the idea. And then you discovered that a small company called Clearview AI had developed such an app. Can you take it from there for us? Sure. So I heard about Clearview in November, and um, I heard about it first from researchers who had done public records requests from law enforcement across the country to ask how they were using facial recognition. And, you know, most most law enforcement at this point in the U.S. 
have face recognition. They've been using it for years, but they rely on these government databases of mugshots and driver's license photos. And even that is somewhat controversial, but Clearview had taken it much further. Um, They had scraped the web of billions of photos so that they could identify many more people than these government databases. And their face recognition tool seemed to work incredibly well when I started talking to police officers who had used it. Um, They said that it had allowed them to solve all kinds of dead-end cases uh, of, you know, people where they they had a face, they didn't know who it was, they had run it through their existing databases and not gotten a hit. But now Clearview was showing them, you know, this person's, all the person's photos online, as well as the websites that they came from. So it was taking them back to their Facebook page or their Instagram page and making it really easy to identify these people. Well, let me ask you, Kashmir, uh, I kind of want to w- w- work or walk through this um, like a Dashmore Hammett novel. Uh, I love the detective approach. And essentially, when I was reading the revelations that you found, it was like a detective film. I mean, you went out as an investigative reporter uh, and you go to various locations and there are these intriguing personalities who will not divulge who they are, in one case using an alias. But your first tip came from a, a man called Freddie Martinez uh, of the open government uh, uh movement, and he tipped you off. And how did that come about? Yeah, so Freddie Martinez is a researcher I've known for years now, and he is interested in exposing the way that governments are using technology, um, basically to suppress civil liberties. And um, so, you know, he had helped me on stories before, and I just knew him, and he knew that this is an area of interest for me. And so he emailed me. I was actually in Switzerland at the time, and he attached this legal memo um, about the company that had been turned over by the Atlanta Police Department. And in it, um, the legal memo was written by Paul Clement, who is uh, quite a high-profile lawyer um, to hire because he's a former U.S. Solicitor General of the United States. He was um, served the most recent President Bush and works at a law firm called Kirkland and Ellis now. And he basically had written this whole memo about how Clearview AI, which is the name of the company, how it didn't break any constitutional or state privacy laws and how, you know, uh, police departments should feel totally comfortable using it. And uh, he said, you know, we, we ran this app on some Kirkland and Ellis associates here at the firm, and it worked incredibly well. Uh, and just you know, made all of these claims about how well it worked and how many law enforcement agencies were already using it and the kinds of crimes that they had already solved using it. And honestly, when I read the memo, I was skeptical. I couldn't believe that this startup that I'd never heard of had a tool that worked this well. Um, but I was impressed by the person who wrote it. Well, uh, I'm impressed by the the entire story and particularly your role in it. Um, you go and, and you've just been at the New York Times a very short period of time, relatively at this point, and uh, you are astonished at the uh, availability of the techniques and, and sources that the New York Times has. It's almost overwhelming. But through your research and the research of new colleagues, you discover that this company, um, its home is really just uh, an apartment uh, on the Upper West Side of New York City. Tell us what happened when you pursued that. <laughs> well, well, the first thing I did when I heard about the company is I Googled it, as one does. 
and I found its website. Um, it was clearview.ai, and it was not publicly accessible. Um, you had to enter your email address to get access to the site, and I did put my email address in there, and I never did get access. It was only for law enforcement. But there was a there was an address at the bottom of the page. It was 145 West 41st Street, and uh, this was just a couple of blocks from the New York Times building. So I just, you know, it, it wasn't it wasn't incredible investigative reporting. I just literally walked over, and uh, it, I got to 143 West 41st Street, and then the building next to it was a Broadway address, and so the address on this website did not exist, and that was the first of kind of a few red flags I came across when I was trying to research the company. And I emailed, you know, some general address that they had, never heard back. Uh, so then I found another address associated with the company that was in business filings. It was on the Upper West Side of New York, near Central Park, near the next to the Dakota building, which is kind of a well-known building. Mm-hmm. And uh, when I got there, it seemed pretty obvious it was kind of a, a residential building. Um, and the doorman at the front door, I said, you know, I'm here because I want to visit the Clearview offices. And he said, there are no businesses here. These are people's homes. Um, you know, I told him the address I wanted to go to, and he said, I'm, I'm sorry, you, you can't go there. That's somebody's house. So now I have two addresses that are not really working for this company, and I start trying to reach people who work for the company. Well, you eventually get uh, a contact from a, a woman rather late in the game called Lisa Lenden, uh, who describes herself as being somewhat of a, a rep for the company. And you also are able to, to realize that there's a founder, and I'm not sure if I'm saying his name correctly. If not, please do correct me. Hoan Tanthat? Hoan Tanthat. Hoan Tanthat. And he turns out to be an Australian. Yeah. Uh, and he's using an alias initially. How did you discover that? So um, when I was doing my online research, I found that the company had a LinkedIn profile, and they had just one person working for them. It was a sales manager named John Good. And the name John Good did appear a couple of other places on the on the Internet associated with the company. But it didn't look like a real account to me. And, you know, I sent it a message. It, like many of the other people I reached out to about the company, did not respond to me. And later when I door knocked at an investment firm that has backed Clearview, one of the founders said, oh, oh, yeah, John Good is a fake name that Juan Tantat is using because he has kind of a disturbing online footprint. When did you first encounter him face to face and what uh, machinations did you have to go through to get to that point? Uh, <laughs> so... So I contacted everyone I could find that was associated with the company, um, even tangentially. I emailed them. I called them multiple times, and no one would respond to me. And really the first time I got somebody to talk to me was this investment firm that is uh, – it was based 40 minutes north of, of the city. I went to their door, and they told me that the company had told them not to talk to me, but for whatever reason, maybe because I was – you know, seven months pregnant and on their doorstep, they decided to let me in and we started talking and it was off the record at first, but they agreed to go on the record about halfway through. And that was the first time that I learned Juan Tontat's name. Um, And so at that point I was Googling him, I was trying to contact him 
but it it wasn't until the company decided to hire a crisis communications um, spokesperson, and she reached out to me and said, "Send me your, you know, send me the com- send me the questions you have for the company," which I did. And after a few more back and forth emails, she, she called me and said, uh, "Juan Tantat is, you know, he's willing to talk to you. He's willing to do an interview." And that was about two months after I had started trying to get in contact with the company. So I met him at a WeWork in early January and got to sit down with him for the first time and ask him all the questions I had. Well, let's go to the um, mysterious Australian, and you're sitting down with him. Um, I'd like to know what it was like. What was the environment like? Were you in a lobby? Were you on a settee, uh, sipping, uh, you know, a, a, a... bottle watered uh, or were you having a coke or what was the environment like between you so i met him and the the spokeswoman lisa linden on the you know the lobby level first floor of this we work you know the co-working space that people can can rent out mm-hmm. and um i had i had googled juan tantat and in photos online he's a very eccentric character He's always wearing like a paisley shirt, and there were some photos of him, you know, shirtless, covered in what looked like blood, smoking a cigarette. He just, he seemed like a strange, strange character. So he kind of revels Um, in his eccentricity. Yes. But in person, he was wearing a very sober navy suit with a white button up. He had glasses, these these, rimless kind of uh, glasses where I'd never seen him in glasses before in any of his online photos and leather shoes. It was a very different version of him, a very, um, you know, very serious security entrepreneur. How old was um, he? Or is he? He is 31. He's 31. So he's so, young. Yeah, very young. Okay, so what is the opening volley uh, between the two of you? Um, I mean, they're, they they were very nice, uh, very welcoming. Um, said, oh, wow, you know, you're pregnant, uh, you look great, and... Um, it was not the the kind of shadowy company that I had encountered up until that time, and we went upstairs with a New York Times photographer who who met us in the lobby, and then we sat in this kind of cramped conference room, uh, four chairs around a table. Lisa Linden had brought uh, chocolate chip cookies. We uh, got lattes, and we sat down and spent two and a half hours talking. Did you like him? Yeah, I mean, he was he was a very nice, very pleasant person. Seemed very open, um, and I, I, you know, I didn't know exactly what to expect. Uh, but he he seemed uh, he seemed genuine um, in our in our interview. Then, how did you initially account uh, for the reticence and reluctance to be communicative initially with then this open personality that you're sitting across the way from? Well, the company said that they were just in stealth startup mode and that, you know, they didn't want people to know about them because they're afraid competition would catch up with them. But, you know, I did have some very disturbing um, experiences while I was reporting on the company. I had started talking to police officers who were using the app and they would tell me how well it worked. And I would say, oh, you know, can you give me a demonstration. Can I send you my photo and can you send me the results so I can see what they look like? And officers initially would say, oh yeah, I'd be happy to do that. But then after I would send them my photo and they would run it, 
everything would suddenly change and officers wouldn't want to talk to me anymore. Um, You know, some said they didn't get any results. And finally, an officer told me that when he ran my photo, he got a call from the company and the company said, are you talking to the media? You know, we don't want you to be talking to the media. Uh, So in that time period when the company wasn't talking to me, they were tracking my talking to officers and telling officers not to talk to me. Um, So that was not, you know, that's not a very open way to deal with the media. Um, That was something I definitely wanted to ask him about in person. Well, you talked about talking to various law enforcement agencies. In Gainesville, Florida, you spoke to a detective, uh, Sergeant Nick Ferrara, and he said, and I quote here, that he was impressed with the, the nationwide database of images. And he said, I quote, it is much larger, unlike Faces, which is another program. Clearview's algorithm doesn't require photos of people looking straight at the camera. In other words, uh, the the app will allow people to be seen in profile, semi-profile, three-quarter angle. It, it seems quite terrorizing to me uh, that that we can even have a part of our facial uh, imagery be recognized. I mean, that is a major breakthrough. Uh, what do you make of this as far as perhaps the potential for false accusations? I mean, I did allude at the outset when we started talking about, you know, films like Minority Report with Tom Cruise, and albeit fiction, the intent of that film is to prevent people from committing crimes ahead of time. Essentially, that's what this is about. Now, you know, there isn't presumed guilt, but the way the, the, the function of this works is the possibility of inevitable guilt. Um, how are you able to reconcile that with with the, the man that you sat down with? I mean, in, mo- in most cases, the way that the officers are using the app is um, uh, to investigate a crime that has already happened, and they have a photo of the person, um, the criminal suspect, or they also use it to find victims in some cases, um, uh, like the child victims who are in exploitation videos. So at, at this point, it is being used to solve crimes that are in the past. So I could imagine a world in which, you know, you can immediately identify anybody you're passing by at any time and uh, could know if they are a suspicious, you know, character or a risky person. Um, I mean, one thing that is kind of difficult about this company is that Anecdotally, everyone told me it works incredibly well. When Juan Tontat demonstrated the app on me, it worked incredibly well. I mean, even when I covered up my nose and my mouth, it was, and he took a photo of me, it was still able to pull up results and identify me. Um, but the, the app hasn't been tested by an outside agency. So we don't have an independent group that's told us how accurate it is. And when I asked, Wanton Tad about that, I would, you know, there's a there's a federal agency here who will test facial recognition algorithm algorithms, and I said, you know, why, you know, why haven't you had them test your algorithm and and you know, given an accuracy rating? And he said, oh, it's a lot of work to submit to them, but he works at this company that is supplying a face recognition tool to hundreds of law enforcement agencies, and. So I would think it would, I would hope it would be important to him to know that it's accurate and have it rated that way by an outside group. So there was some flippancy about him 
when it comes to this powerful tool that he's put in law enforcement hands um, that, that I found a bit troubling. One of the interesting things about your article, amongst many interesting things, is you alluded to um, what's called augmented reality glasses. And essentially, the way I interpreted it, uh, one can put on it's, – it's possible with the, with the program, with the database the way it's written, to be adjacent or a company or, if you will, uh, in sync, to use another expression, uh, with a apparatus which would look like a regular pair of glasses. And then when you looked at various persons with these glasses on, you could – within a short period of time, know who they were, background and what have you. Um, it reminds me of the BBC Sherlock series with Cumberbatch, you know, where he uh, is mm. able to look, and, and in this case, it's his cognizance of memory where he can identify who various persons are and what have you. But essentially, we're using artificial intelligence to be able to do that with a pair of spectacles on. So you could indeed pretend that you're reading the New York Times on the New York subway, flip the pages down, look up over the paper and actually see someone at the far end and either for just romantic potential interests or nefarious interests, you can know who that person is and moreover know where they live. Is that not terrifying? Yeah, I mean, it reminds me actually of uh, Gary Steingart's super sad true love story where everybody is able to identify everyone else all the time along with scores, social credit scores, uh, financial credit scores, ratings and reviews that they've gotten from other people. Um, I mean, this is this is a this is a uh, plot device we see in much of science fiction, where you can identify everybody all the time, and usually it's from dystopian science fiction. I mean, I I do find it terrifying in a way to to imagine a world in which you can't be anonymous, that you can't be having a private conversation at dinner. Uh, without the risk of somebody taking your photo and knowing, you know, the, the coded language that we use in public to talk about sensitive things, that they could decode it because they could know who you are and could know who your companion was. Um, you know, I could imagine benefits that you could go to a cocktail party and uh, never never forget anyone's name. Um, but at this point, I'm not sure whether the um, whether those those mild benefits well, it certainly uh, will have a negative. It was certainly will have a negative effect on the name tag industry. <laughs> <laughs> so let me ask you this, though. I mean, it seems to me that we're living in a time when oh. people are rather resigned uh, to the idea, and I, I sense when talking to persons an attitude of, "Well, what are you going to do?" I mean, we we for ten years now, you can go to a grocery store and put your thumbprint. Uh, on under a little bit of plastic to identify who you are so you can get perhaps a 5% discount on Gatorade. Um, I mean, this is absurd, the amount of information that we give out. And you've actually addressed that uh, with your um, TED Talk and which you were living in a home, which uh, by design you permitted and, and avidly sought to have uh, smart television, smartphone, smart bed, uh, and you even referred to smart um, sexual toys and things of this nature. Um, what I like about your writing is you're kind of an amalgamation of, of um, Irma Bombeck in a technical sense, uh, the way you write. So it's engaging, it's very interesting and funny, but there is this rather somber, serious undertone to what you are writing, which is frankly quite scary. Um, in your research for doing the stuff that you had with the smart apparatuses from you know vacuum cleaners and what have you, what was your takeaway? So turning my uh, apartment in San Francisco into a, a smart home was, I, I was hoping mostly to find out about the data flows, but I think the reason that that piece was kind of funny is that 
uh, I just found that it was horrible to live in the home. Um, you know, my my toothbrush had a password on it. Uh, my um, uh, We had to try to tell our Alexa to make us coffee in the morning, and it never worked. And so we just started every day shouting at her, trying to get her to do what we wanted her to do. And <laughs> Was shouting out a frustration of emotion or just trying to be effective? Which was it? Well, <laughs> uh, trying to be effective. I mean, oh, okay. you were supposed to use this very specific <laughs> phrase that we could never remember that early in the morning. My husband would say, just let me go to the kitchen and, you know, turn on the device. And I'd always be like, no, we're supposed to do it the smart way. Um, <laughs> so it was part of what was frustrating about living in that smart home is that we were sending a lot of data out about our lives. Um, and my colleague, Surya Matu, the engineer who kind of set up the, um, the the house so that we could monitor the information going in and out, was learning a lot about us. Um, you know, he would know in the morning when we would have a phone call whether or not I had brushed my teeth yet or not. He knew that we stayed in on New Year's Eve and, and watched TV um, even though we didn't even use the internet, we were watching TV with a DVD player, and still that information was being sent out. But um, you know, the, the, usually we say we're giving up privacy in exchange for convenience. And in my smart home, I was giving up both. It was both inconvenient and uh, making our house kind of a less sacred place. Uh, and uh, yeah, there were there were various kind of privacy compromises uh, that. Advertisers were seeing what we watched on TV, um, but the more kind of the more disconcerting uh, thing about it was just realizing that we were inviting companies into our homes to monitor what we're doing and collect this data about us without really knowing how they might eventually use that data. Um, and that's something I think that comes back to Clearview, where we've all put all these photos up online on social media sites, on employment sites, on educational sites. And we weren't thinking, oh, maybe one day someone's going to come along and scrape all these photos of us and create a huge facial recognition app so that we can never be anonymous in public again. It's just it's very hard to navigate our modern world because we are increasingly having everything about our lives tracked digitally without knowing how that information will eventually be used against us. Kashmir, you have uh, referenced that you are pregnant and that you're going to have a, a baby shortly. Given that you know the current state of the world we live in, and years ago there were books like Future Shock and things of this nature, which had a rather uh, dystopic, as you said, foreboding uh, sense of the future, brave new world and what have you. Do you have concerns as a mother particularly about this world that we have with the exchange of information? Oh, I think about it all the time. I mean, I already have one uh, child in the world, um, and I, I think it's so hard as individuals to protect our privacy. I mean, I keep, I, I do post photos of my daughter online. I usually do it on Instagram on an account that I keep private because I like to, you know, share our life with our friends, and that is the place where people are exchanging information about one another. At the same time, I'm writing about all the downsides of putting photos of your kids online um, or giving your information to companies like Facebook. And so I'm very sympathetic with people. I, I think it is impossible to perfectly protect your privacy 
unless you're going to go live in the woods with no with no electricity. Um, I I do. I do worry a lot about what the future is going to look like for them, um, especially because I don't see regulators keeping up with the way technology is fundamentally changing the world and our, you know, expectations of privacy. Um, so, yeah, I, I, I worry about it a lot. So at the core, it's an issue of, of being very much unable to trust. Is that true? Yeah, I mean, I just don't know. So, for example, we have an Alexa smart speaker at home. And at around two years old, Alexa started to be able to understand my daughter. So now my daughter can ask her to play usually terrible songs, you know, Disney songs, Pixar songs. And I think about this a lot, that if we keep this smart speaker in our home, Amazon that makes the um, Echo smart speaker is going to have what, 16 years of my daughter talking to this machine um, that, that they could make some kind of psychological profile of her based on the way she talks to it and what she asked for. And, uh, you know, I don't know what they could do with that information. Uh, at the same time, it's, you know, convenient to have the smart speaker at home and to be able to set timers when we're cooking and order up songs. Um, so we are making these trade-offs all the time. And the big problem is that we are giving up information that seems to us to to not be something that could harm us or be used against us, but we cannot predict how it could eventually be used because of the way that technology is changing all the time. Kashmir, is there any question I've not asked you that you wish I had or thought it would be wise for me to ask you? Well, the one thing that strikes me is that in the absence of regulation, we kind of have to rely on companies to follow their own moral compasses. And that I, I just don't know how how good a system that creates for us. Um, you know, like when, when I asked Juan Tantat about how he felt about breaking this taboo, you know, companies like Google and Facebook could have easily have created a technology like Clearview. Um, Ten years ago, Google said it was the one technology they had decided not to release, this kind of universal facial recognition, because it could be used in such a bad way, and that Juan Tantat had decided to kind of cross that that bright red line, um, break that taboo, and release this app into the world. And, you know, he says, well, it's just for law enforcement. He's very proud of the way it can be used to solve crime. But I said, you know, now that you guys have done this, have set this precedent, other companies are going to, you know, offer a tool like this if, if you yourself don't end up offering it to consumers. And how do you feel about having potentially fundamentally changed our understanding of privacy and our ability to be anonymous in public? And he said that he hadn't really thought about it and that he, you know, he'd have to get back to me. And that just kind of, that, that, that scared me, that these companies, they just get so excited about the technology and they just keep pushing forward, and there's not really a consideration for our privacy built into the way that they're thinking about this. But absent regulation, we they are creating the, the framework for how our data is going to be used. Um, and so it's kind of terrifying when they say they haven't really thought about the implications of what they're doing. Kashmir Hill, 
You have been an utter delight, and I'm so grateful to have had you as a guest on Watching America. May I have your, well, pardon and forgiveness if we go out today playing Kashmir? No, please do. That would be lovely. All right. Take care. Many blessings, and thank you. Thank you, Alan. Well now, after the main course, let's have a little dessert as we turn our attention to something new. It is my delight to encourage new talent on watching America. It's my delight to welcome people who are originals and certainly in terms of writing their own material musically. That certainly applies to a duo that call themselves The Running Mates. That's comprised of Julie and Spencer Brochard. Now, you might think, hmm, same last name, brother and sister perhaps? Nay, not true. They are in fact married. Uh, they've been married for the last two years, and they met each other at Berkeley College of Music in Boston, Massachusetts. So, Julie, I want to ask you, where did you grow up uh, uh, as far as your place of origin? Sure. So I grew up 40 minutes south of Boston in a town called Whitman, Mass., Okay. Now, did you always have an interest in music? Were you one of those girls that had a brush in your hand and, you know, were looking into the mirror and singing to yourself? Yes, that was 100% me. I um, I used to love to sing along to Disney movies. Um, my mom worked a lot when we were younger, and she still works a lot, but she, she would uh, put on Disney movies, and um, that would keep me and my sister's attention just for hours on end, and we would sing along, and um, yeah, it was... That was definitely me. <laughs> so you were Ariel, or were you Pocahontas? Oh, definitely Ariel. And that actually, <laughs> <laughs> for yeah, in, in the future, that actually came to be. I actually was Ariel at Disney World as well. So oh, wow, dream, you little worked... girl dreams coming true. Uh, what now, I, I want to start there. What was it like working at Disney World? Because, you know, I, I know it's fair to say that even though the CEO of Disney World, you know, just for a retirement package, they'll get like $50 million for a bye-bye, whereas the people who actually work uh, on the grounds make very, very little. But it's certainly an experience. So you played Ariel. Did you play any other characters? Just Ariel. And um, yeah, to speak to that, I was in a union. So compared to some of the workers who, you know, they're working long hours for low wages, et cetera, I actually was covered by a union, and so I was treated more fairly and paid more fairly than the some of the other employees at Disney. Um, it was a wonderful place to work. It was it was so cool, you know, to like be backstage and see all that stuff. and And I worked at the Voyage of the Little Mermaid, which is a twenty minute musical theater show in Hollywood Studios. Well, I'm sure you were able to mesmerize little girls and boys who would, would just be enchanted with you assuming that character. Um, you know, there's very important alumni who have who have come from Disney. For instance, Steve Martin used to work at Disneyland in Anaheim and, and what have you. So uh, it comes full circle. You actually get to be Ariel. Then you decide to go to Berklee College of Music in Boston. Now, what led to that decision? And was it what you anticipated it would be? Um. Yeah, it was so much more than what I thought it would be. It's funny because growing up near Boston, when we used to drive past Berkeley, my dad would point it out and say things like, that's where the best of the best went in the world. That's an amazing, amazing school like with incredible musicians. And I used to just look at it and be like, wow, that's so cool, but never even dreamed that I would go. 
And I actually started college um, at a different school and I did two years studying, you know, journalism communications, um, something sort of broad. I wasn't really sure what I wanted to do, but I started taking music classes while I was there. And I was like, you know what? I, I can't do anything but music. I don't know why I even tried to do something else. So I'm going to apply to Berkeley. And um, honestly, never thinking I would get in. And I applied. I got in. I remember my dad was, I called him and I was like, I got into Berkeley. And he could not believe it. He was like, are you serious? And he was like, you have to go. You have to go. That's amazing. And um, when I got there, it was, I mean, it was so much more than I ever thought it would be. It's like Hogwarts for music. Well, eventually you meet a dashing gentleman uh, called Spencer uh, with the last name Brochard. And tell me how you first met. And was it, in fact, love at first sight? We've got to know that. Yes, Julie, was it love at first sight? (laughs) Oh, my gosh. So in the dorm that we were staying in, it was like an old brownstone, actually. Um, Only one floor had girls on it and all the other four or five floors were boys. So the boys used to come down and sort of like hang around on the girls floor just to, you know, just to see someone, meet someone. And one day um, I'm like coming back to my dorm and there's these three guys just standing in our common room and they're dressed up. It was around Halloween time, like two limes and one banana. (laughs) And Spencer was one of the limes. And I remember thinking, that's really funny. Like that, like that's, that's really funny. I like, I like that. And I don't even know if we really talked very much that day, but I just remember thinking that they had good senses of humor. Um, and then from there on out, they would always kind of like just hang around. Um, and so we started talking and hanging out and, um, honestly, Spencer (laughs) tried, we tried to, uh, go on a Valentine's Day date or he asked me and I said no because I wasn't really interested in a boyfriend. I just wanted to focus on music and have fun and um but he was very persistent and <laughs> after about a year I was like okay fine I'll be your girlfriend. But that was almost wow. 11 years ago now. So So you he, you yeah. weren't playing hard to get. You really were hard to get. I guess I really was hard to get. She yes. was very hard to get. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, I think it's time that we listen to to Spencer. I I, I want to get Spencer's version. All right, Spencer, you tell me your perspective. What, how did this this romance bud here? So basically, just like Julie said, um, yeah, I was dressed as a lime, as you do, you know, when you're trying to court a young lady. And um, I think just at first we kind of bonded over just our mutual senses of humor and, you know, our love of 90s music and things like that. So a year goes by. And uh, when was the first time that you actually both of you sat down and said, you know what? We don't sound that bad. In fact, we sound very good together. When did that occur? Well, you know, we didn't really start the the running mates as it is now until after um, Berkeley. So at Berkeley, you know, we would sing together just just for fun, you know, and just to be just to flirt with each other, basically. But then um, after Berkeley, when Julie moved to Orlando to do the Disney thing, I actually went out to Los Angeles. Um, I was really into movies at the time, and I actually pursued acting for a while for a, a year or two. Um, and then Julie moved out to, to be with me and that's when we kind of started really giving it a go and, you know, forming the band together. So are you in LA now or are you on the East coast? No. So we're in Boston now. So we lived in Los Angeles for six years and, uh, we just moved back to Boston about two years ago now. 
Okay, so you know uh, what Southern California is like. Um, you know, <laughs> uh, they say it never rains in Southern California was an old song from decades ago. But it can be a very difficult life is the point. Okay, so you get together and you decide that you're going to test the waters by putting material up on YouTube. And at first you're doing covers. And now we're going to hear a little bit of my favorite cover tune that you do, Fleetwood Mac's Everywhere. When you get to the point that you are going to be doing Fleetwood Macs everywhere and, and you know that you're making videos, um, were you reasonably confident at that point that you were going to get a very uh, favorable reception? No, not at all. We both had, um, you know, separate YouTube channels kind of when, when YouTube became a thing. You know, we just thought it was like a fun thing to put up covers of our favorite artists and stuff. And we definitely weren't expecting any kind of, you know, fans or anything like that it's still we still say it's kind of weird for us to even think that we have fans you know um but um you know we just we just like to do it and enjoyed it and um we definitely didn't get a lot of views our first i would say 20 videos or maybe yeah for like three years when did you start to sense that the tide was turning and that you were in fact gaining an audience um yeah so there was one video in particular that was really the turning point for us um, there was a really popular show on Netflix called 13 Reasons Why, and they heavily featured a song called The Night We Met. Um, it's by Lord Huron? Yes, sorry, by Lord Huron. Um, it's a really beautiful song. We thought right away, like, oh my gosh, that's gorgeous. And we're like, you know what, let's cover this and let's do it soon because, <laughs> you know, trying to be a little more business-minded, we were like, this series just came out like maybe there's a possibility that people will be searching for this song but again not really thinking much would come of it um and so we recorded the song we put it up on youtube and within like the first day i think we had like ten thousand hits on it and that had never happened like none of our videos had ever reached that so we were like oh my god that's that's awesome like that's great so we, um, that video continued to grow and our subscriber list started to grow and people started listening to our videos and we, <laughs> we weren't, we weren't consistent with it, to be honest. Like we kind of just let it go by the wayside and we're like, oh, well that was awesome. And we, we, yeah, we should have like one video every couple months or so. Yeah. Every couple months or so we'd put up a new video and, um, yeah, but that definitely was the video that got people's attention and got maybe our first, you know, fans, I guess you could say, who were like, oh, I'm, I'm going to come back and watch another video kind of a thing. Pretty soon after that is when we started working on a cruise ship. So I know that's like that's a big jump. Um, but basically what happened was we were living in Los Angeles. We were trying to do original music. It's a really tough town. <laughs> it can it can, uh, you know, it can really get yes. to you because you you know, you're putting everything into it. But at the same time, you know, we were both waiting tables full time and you get home and you're exhausted. And 
Um, we played shows maybe once a month, but um, we're like, you know what? Let's try something new. Let's um, like we got an email from someone that was like, would you be interested in working on a cruise ship? And we were like, you know what? <laughs> for the for the first time in our life, we're actually gonna we're gonna consider something different and new, and not give up on the dream of being artists, but maybe just kind of put it on the wayside for a little bit and just have a little bit of fun and travel. Actually, you asked me about guitar earlier, I think, and I just got good in the last couple of years because the cruise ship um, they wanted a duo, and they wanted a duo that sang and both played instruments. And I was like, crap, like, I don't really play anything. I don't play anything good. And I was like, but I really, really want to go to Australia and I really want to do this. And I, I was like, let's just tell them that I play an instrument. And I learned for our audition video, I learned whatever songs we had to play on the guitar. And that was it. That was all I could play. But we ended up getting <laughs> the job. So I was basically learning on the job every single night once we finally got on the cruise ship and we were just... Um, it's like, it's the ultimate fake it till you make it, <laughs> but it was the best way yes, to learn an yeah. instrument really quickly. Well, it's like the actor, you know, if an actor's ever asked if they can ride a horse, they say, of course I can, you know, and then they'll go and immediately take lessons, which we've actually had a, <laughs> exactly. uh, an actor say on, on this program before. Um, uh, in fact, Terry O'Quinn, if you remember Terry O'Quinn, um, from amongst many th shows, but also from Lost, he played John Locke. Uh, he oh, was my yeah. guest in studio. And he, he told me and told us, the audience, that uh, he got a part in a major film and he was asked by the director, can you ride a horse? He says, of course I can. You know, and then he immediately went out and got 10 lessons. So you do what you have to do. Now, the, the cruise world is a strange world unto itself, I've been told by many, because you have, you know, special allocated areas where you're supposed to hide away from the mass populace. Did you have a, a decent cabin or, or what was the, what were the circumstances like? Were you next to a boiler? What, what was your living circumstances like? Oh my gosh, like? I almost cried the first day. I think I probably I shed a tear or two because we went downstairs and they were like, all right, this is your room. And I, I really thought he was showing us a closet. And I was like, no, no, this can't be the room, you know, because we had just gotten married. And all of a sudden we're having to live in bunk beds and honestly, like a closet size space. Um, yes. It was like it was very, very like it wasn't super clean because it was an old ship not talking bad about the ship. Like it was nice, but it was, um, it was just really old and we were below the water line. So there's no windows. Like you never know what time of day it is. And you're not, we had privileges to walk, you know, kind of wherever we wanted, but there are certain people on the ship who don't have deck privileges. So they're not allowed to even go above, you know, a certain deck, which was just crazy to me. Yeah. It's, um, it's really archaic the, the way they've got it oh, set up. You know? Absolutely. It really was. And it is a world it's it's a world of its own. There's actually, you know, there's like little businesses that happen underneath the ship that are unspoken. Like you don't talk about the businesses because they're not yes. technically supposed to be happening. And um, yes, I've heard. It, yeah, it was it was so interesting. And we met people from all over the world. That was the coolest part of it. We have friends now from Australia and South Africa and England. And um, we met the greatest people. But it was seven days a week, like three three, four hours a day. Plus, you know, you're a sailor first is the whole thing with a cruise ship. So you really have to learn like the ins and outs of the safety of the ship and, you know, what to do in an emergency and things like that. So it was, it was a lot. It was a really good learning experience though. 
If you're just joining us, you're listening to Watching America. I'm your host, Dr. Alan Campbell, and it is my delight to have as my guest today a duo, Julie and Spencer Brochard, otherwise known as The Running Mates. And you can certainly see their work. They have their own channel on YouTube, and they are um, a budding act, uh, gaining momentum continuously. Now, you started to write your own material. I suspect that the video with the fullest sound that you have, certainly as far as uh, depth of uh, sonic material, is Worlds Fall Apart. Let's play a clip. Worlds Fall Apart by The Running Mates. That was an interesting track. Let me ask you about an earlier track you did called Destiny, which uh, has a lot of video imagery of weddings and what have you. I love the line, I don't like dancing, but I like dancing with you. And you kind of uh, build upon that. Which one of you really wrote that? Was it you, Julie, or or was it Spencer that came up with the lyrics? And and what's the process you go about writing your material together? Um, So I think, for that song in particular, I had started that song and that line that you said is actually, it's one that I have been keeping, but I didn't know what to do with it yet. And so I wrote it and I wrote most of it, I would say. And then I came out and played it for Spencer and he was like, I really like that, but I think that it's a little repetitive. Like some of the lyrics I had, um, I don't know, it, it was like too repetitive or I think it was like sort of like negative. I forget how it was, but you like, you took it, you heard it, and you were like, how about, what if we did this? What if we did that? Um, so Spencer, we we have a joke we kind of call Spencer. Um, the tweaker. The tweaker, yeah, <laughs> because I'll bring him a song that's like mostly complete, and then he'll he'll add like some awesome finishing touches that just really take it to the next level, or he'll throw in some chords or just some tweaks to some lyrics that really make it what it is, and that was definitely the case with Destiny. And I think we wrote that chorus together. Spencer, what is your basic process of writing? I mean, uh, as Julia's just indicated, you will supplement what she comes up with. But are you ever the genesis of any original material? Yeah, for sure. I think, you know, both of us write on our own and we kind of decide what works for the running mates and then what kind of is going to be, you know, like our own our own uh, process or whatever. But I think we both kind of just, you know, we start off on the guitar and, you know, you find a chord progression that you like or a rhythm or something or a riff and then words kind of just naturally pop into your head, you know, and then you put a melody to it. And and then I think we kind of, if we think it could be something for the running mates, we'll bring it to the other person so that we can kind of, you know, get the the half and half split and, you know, kind of get both perspectives of it. Are you both under self-management or do you have a manager? Self-management. Yeah, we're just <laughs> flying by the seat of our pants, honestly, is what <laughs> we say all the time because we don't know what we're doing. It's really funny. Like we... We have, you know, a pretty good following on YouTube now and people will email us and they're like, how do you do it? What are you doing? And we're like, we don't know. (laughs) We have no idea how this happened or, you know, we just try to be consistent, put up things with good, you know, video quality and good sound quality. And that's like the extent we're we're honestly not really sure what we're doing on any given day. (laughs) (laughs) If people want to get in touch with you, how do they do it? Tell us about your website and where they can reach you. Absolutely. Um, So just 
TheRunningMates.com is the best way to find everything that we have. We have all links to our YouTube, Facebook, Instagram. Um, yeah, so just TheRunningMates.com. You can find our um, like CDs for sale, things like that, um, as well as any shows that we might have coming up, um, our live streams, things like that. Very good. Spencer, um, I just want to say uh, it's been a delight talking with you and with Julie. Thank you so very, very much for joining us here in Watching America. We will look avidly to see your progression as performers, as the running mates, and perhaps independently as well. Thank you so very much for blessing us with your presence. We wish you great success. Thank you so Thank much. You it was so a pleasure. Much. Take care. Been listening to Watching America. It's destiny. Our theme music is provided by Razorlight. Our recording engineer is Todd Washburn. Our producer, Paul Bebo. Our senior producer is Gina Gamboni. Our executive producer, Chuck Dowd. Heather Mazzoni is chief of content, and Bert Schmidt is our CEO. I am the series creator and host, Alan Campbell. It's destiny. Until next time, take care. And blessings. It's destiny. Watching America is a production of WHRV Public Media in Norfolk, Virginia.